My name is Jenna and I'm here to help you do all the hard things. I'm a licensed professional counselor with nearly 10 years of clinical and research experience working with people who have some of the most debilitating OCD and anxiety in the world. I'm also a mom, a personal trainer, and a lover of modern spirituality. My goal is to bring you all the research, guidance, and encouragement you need to help you remember and know how strong you truly are. Now let's get to it. You guys know by now that I love the concept of doing hard things. This is how we become our best selves. And that's exactly why I started the 14 Days of Magic with Magic Mind in an effort to be my very best self. Three changes I wanted to make since the beginning of this challenge were to meditate every day, to do something for myself in the morning before I start doing something for work or for Eli or for my husband, and to be more mindful when it comes to stress eating. I tend to eat a lot when I'm stressed and it's definitely an anxiety-driven behavior, not something that I feel really good about. And the purpose of this challenge is to help people feel like their best selves for 14 days while also saving the Amazon rainforest in the process. You can contribute to Saving the Rainforest by just posting content with the 14 Days of Magic hashtag. For every 10,000 views the 14 Days of Magic hashtag gets, Magic Mind will donate $10 to the reforestation of the Amazon rainforest with a $30,000 donation goal. Even just watching the hashtag of 14 Days of Magic, just watching those videos actually helps increase the donations, which is super cool. I'll be giving a full review of Magic Mind in a later episode, Uh, and if you want to be part of this journey with me, you can get yourself some Magic Mind by using the code ATHT for 20% off your order. More information in the show notes. I really think you guys would love it, especially with how OCD can sometimes make us all feel a little scatterbrained and mentally foggy which is definitely the case for me. Magic Mind has been super helpful in allowing me to hone in on all of the things I have to do and its ingredients like honey and matcha are specifically designed to help decrease stress and help keep you focused. You can access the challenge by going to magicmind.co slash pages slash 14 days of magic. Head there to submit your content, enter to win a subscription of Magic Mind, and be sure to use and watch the hashtag 14 days of magic to help donate to the reforestation project. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of All the Hard Things. I'm here with Dr. Margaret Rutherford, um, and we are going to talk about perfectionism today um, and kind of the overlap that we see in both of our work together. Um, Obviously, I specialize in OCD and related conditions, um, but Dr. Margaret Rutherford here has a book, which I have right here, Perfectly Hidden Depression. Um, I did start to dive into it and, you know, there's just so much overlap here and hopefully some good expertise that we'll be able to bring to the episode today on perfectionism, how that comes out in various ways and um, how it can just cause so many significant difficulties for people, um, including depression. So um, if you don't mind, uh, could you just give us a little bit of a background um, as to what it is that you do? what it is that you specialize in and and kind of what brings you to the podcast today. Sure, Jenna. Hi to all your listeners. I appreciate being here. My my path to being a psychologist has been somewhat circuitous, actually. I was a jingle singer in my 20s. I sang um, television and radio ads. Um, So I really loved doing that. And I I sang at night and I did nightclub acts and that kind of thing. Um, but I discovered that that lifestyle wasn't really great for me. And so I, you know, I hadn't even 
gone to school for psychology, but I was working at the battered women's shelter in Dallas and loved that work. And so I ended getting a degree in music therapy and eventually in clinical psychology. So um, that was in Dallas, Texas. And then my husband and I moved here to Fayetteville back in 1992. And I've been here practicing ever since. Then when my uh, son, my only son left for college, I had time on my hands and I thought, well, you know, maybe I can write some. So I started a blog and that led me to a blog post in April of 2014 that I was writing about some of the people that I had seen that when they walked in my door or your door, that they would firmly deny that they were depressed. In fact, they would say, oh, no, 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 that's not why I'm here at all. And they would talk more about perhaps anxiety or pressure or um, maybe a relationship issue, something like that. What I learned was what these people had in common was that they could not express painful emotion. Um, they didn't even know how they, they, they would sort of smile about things and tell me about abuse or trauma in their past and say, oh, you know, really wasn't that big deal. It just happened once. There are a lot of people a lot worse off than me. And I, so I wrote about it. I, I just pulled this term out of the air, perfectly hidden depression. And the post was called the perfectly hidden depressed person. Are you one? Well, it went viral. And then I was writing for the Huff Post at the time, and they published it. And within 24 hours, I had gotten hundreds of emails from people because I'd forgotten I'd left my email address at the bottom of the post. <laughs> and so, and being the perfectionist I am, I answered all of them. Um, but I was thought I was onto something. And um, so I started looking in the literature. I found Dr. Brene Brown, of course, who has her wonderful research on perfectionism and shame and vulnerability. And um, I, I got some, I saw some other books, but I didn't see anything except in the academic literature, in the in the people who were writing for for professional psychology journals that were talking about this link between perfectionism, depression, and suicide. And I thought, okay. You know, I'm sort of a firm believer, Jenna, that if it if it doesn't exist and you think it should, then create it. And so little old me, all along with my imposter syndrome and everything else that went along with it, I started working on this book. And lo and behold, it was published. And that came out in 2019. In order to try to build an audience, that's when I started the podcast. Um, started the Self Work Podcast in 2016, and I've absolutely loved doing that. Um, and I've had that going now for six years, almost. In fact, our anniversary is in about three weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's been Happy a anniversary. My God. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I mean, I know that as therapists, as psychologists, right? Like we come to the table with some draw, right? Like some draw as to what really drew you into working with this population, um, and I'm hearing, you know, that you struggled too with some perfectionism, like the perfectionist and you, you know, emailed everybody back, so on and so forth. So what really drew you to this population and wanting so badly to help individuals who are struggling with perfectionism? Well, I do. I, I have what's called, I, I, or I, I have it. It's not something you have. I, I consider myself a, con, a constructive perfectionist in that my perfectionism has never gotten to the point where it's causing me you know, mental or emotional problems as destructive perfectionism does. What really drew me was the, this incredible response. And then I started hearing from people. I started trying to formulate in my own mind, what did these people look like that their perfectionism was acting as a camouflage? 
camouflage mm -hmm. for what had been what are feelings very real feelings for them of despair loneliness and I was writing these blog posts you know monthly just to try to gather my thoughts about what this was and at the bottom of those uh, blog posts I would say if you find yourself in this in this description that I'm trying to talk about trying to learn you know would you reach out to me well, I had in about a three month period of time from all over the world, I had at least 90 people. I had a, a brain surgeon, an ad exec, a motivational speaker, a graduate students, a dentist. I mean, men, women from all over the world saying, yes, I identify with this. And so I interviewed them. Um, all of them, I gave them, well, I, I, I culled it down to about 60 interviews and I talked with them for about two hours about what had happened in their life and how they had developed this sort of, oh, I need to look perfect. I need to seem perfect. I need to hide. I need, and there were various circumstances that had caused this or led to this, that being abuse and neglect, of course, that being in high, in being being in highly enmeshed families, growing up in families where they weren't allowed to talk about anger or sadness, growing up in a family where they were only seen for their accomplishments. Uh, minorities would say I had to be more than perfect in order to get the uh, possibilities, you know, some of the potentials that that majority people, Caucasians had in the United States. I, I had to, you know, there are lots of, as we'd say in Arkansas, there are lots of ways around the barn, but so there are lots of ways to get to this strategy. Um, but it, it ends up being something that can be tragically lethal mm -hmm. uh, and they're all I won't necessarily go into all the categories of perfectionism that uh, researchers study but there's a specific kind where literally you are the kind of person where you have to meet the expectations of other people not only perfectly but you have to exceed their expectations and you can't say no to your children, to your church, to your community, to your professional life, to your spouse, to your mother-in-law, to, you know, to anybody who asks you to do something, you go, yeah, you know, I can take that on. Sure. And you don't take anything else off. Mm -hmm. So I came up with these 10 characteristics of what I call the syndrome of perfectly hidden depression. Um, and I started again. And so I, then I did these interviews and I just became passionate about getting this word out. Now, uh, in my interview with you a little earlier, I did talk about my mom some, and my mom had OCD. She was, well, she was never diagnosed with it, but that's what she had. But she also had this incredible need to seem always put together, always in control. I never saw her cry. Um, she, and, and so I think she would definitely fit the rubric. She would fit the the um, syndrome characteristics of someone, except that she, she didn't take a lot of responsibility. But anyway, um, I, I actually, in the book, included OCD as something that this kind of person could also be struggling with uh, because I didn't want someone with OCD to say, oh, wait a minute, I don't have OCD. I have PhD. I have perfectly hidden depression. And I didn't want that to happen because obviously there are clinical conditions that these people could tend to, to um, uh, have that need treatment. And there's, you know, yeah, there's treatment for this kind of destructive perfectionism, but it's not like 
uh, more specifically focused therapies like for OCD. Mm-hmm. It's different. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So much to unpack here. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So the, the tricky thing, well, one of the tricky things is that perfectionism isn't in and of itself, right. An official diagnosis. It kind of yeah. exists as this trait. trait. Um, yeah. And like so many other things, it's kind of on the spectrum and the lines aren't very definitive as to like, okay, like when is it just, you know, a, a, a little quirk about me and something that I do every once in a while versus, okay, when is it actually, um, you know, becoming a problem? When is it actually becoming distressing? When is it actually at the cost of some mental, emotional, relational, or even physical well-being, right? So um, at what point do you feel or would you tell people that, you know, this this might be getting to the point where it's coming, you know, at the cost of your mental or physical or emotional well-being? What At what point does it kind of tip over the scale for you? And if you could well, give examples of, of you seeing that, that would be really helpful because I feel like, you know, we see and we really resonate with like, the, the good parts of the perfectionism, right? The good grades and the, yeah. the praise that we get at work, but we don't really like bring light to the actual awfulness that can come with this, right? There's a real distinction between perfectionism that is fueled by creativity or generosity or just drive or, you know, a belief that you want to help other people or you want to succeed at something, but that you can say, you know, well, I'm too tired to do that today. Or uh, you can, you can show people that you're vulnerable. You can make mistakes and say, you know, I, I, I didn't do this well, or you, you are, you're not fueled more destructive. Perfectionism is fueled by a sense of shame and fear. People are going to find me out. You know, I have to hide. This is about hiding. This is about uh, erecting again. I'll use that word, a shroud or a camouflage or armor, that protects you and it's not something you can let show um it's not something that you can laugh about and say oh yeah i'm, I'm too perfectionistic to let people see me you know like you know I, I talked with a woman yesterday who was all upset that she was perspiring at a football game it was very hot and she has a lot of perfectionism but i'm talking about more the things that you you literally never share something that you feel such shame about in your history. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I've, I've heard from so many people, Jenna, who've lost loved ones. Uh, a, a woman comes to mind who called me probably two years ago or contacted me and said, you know, my best friend, my best friends killed herself and we're shocked. And at this point, I bet every one of your listeners knows someone who died by their own hand and everybody was shocked. Like mm-hmm. what happened? You know, um, this woman had done the same thing. And sure enough at the funeral, her husband came over and said, I found this on Patricia's bedside table and it was my book. No. So there are people looking for answers. There are people whose lives are just horribly governed by this, their musts and their shoulds, what the cognitive behaviorists would say absolutes, mm-hmm. you know, governed by these absolutes and they don't know what to do except follow those and yet what I'm offering in the book 
certainly are steps to get out of that. And also to, you know, the, to me, the antidote for perfectly hidden depression is self-acceptance and self-acceptance is being able to claim your strengths, but also being able to reveal your vulnerabilities and to realize that neither one of them defines you. Mm -hmm. Neither one of them is all of you. Right. So anyway, um, it has been work that has been incredibly rewarding. I talked with a woman yesterday whose senior high school student killed himself. Um, she never knew, you know, she didn't know why she was totally shocked. Um, he was, you know, he had everything going for him, quote unquote. We all know of these college athletes who've taken their own lives in the last few years, or there have been more, many more. When you really look at the literature, this has been, has been around for a long time. We got warnings about uh, perfectionism um, back in the 90s from people who were saying, you know, mental health professionals need to put away their DSM-5 mm-hmm. and those criteria for depression and instead look at how is the person living? You know, they're, you know, the big word for it is phenomenology. You know, look at their, look at how they're living, look at what's going on with them. What kind of pressure do they have? Are they, do they ever talk about themselves with their friends? Does anybody know them? Do do they, do they have a base of shame behind this perfectionism? Do they admit trauma? Can they talk about the way they feel when it's sad? Or, or do they look at you and go, I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? Sadness. You know, I don't have a reason to be sad. I'm just grat- grateful. You know, do, are they what's called toxic positivity? Mm-hmm. Are they tending to be, you know, overly positive? Not that gratitude isn't a wonderful thing, but you can overuse it just like anything else. So my passion has been not because I had my own personal journey with this, but because I have just been catapulted into this situation where I had to say something. Um, And, you know, again, I get weekly emails from people saying, this was my mother, this was me, this was my son, this was my husband. Um, And tragically, some of those people have died. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I, I too, I had someone, um, a close college friend who took her own life. And yeah, exactly like you're saying, we were all shocked. Um, Did really well in school, um, was a college athlete, had tons of friends. And it's it's like, wow, it's so scary. um, What we're all kind of like hanging, what we're all kind of bringing with us into these like various life experiences, what we see on the surface is never actually the whole case. And so I'm imagining those people out there who emailed you and were like, oh my gosh, this really resonates with me. That's me. Exactly. I imagine they probably had like that light bulb moment of like, oh my gosh, that's me. I love giving people those light bulb moments where we can put a name or a description to something it is that they've been doing where they feel like they're the only one who does it or that they're just weird or strange or um, kind of alone but oh my gosh, they're not alone. This is actually a thing. So I really like to give people examples of, um, and in this case, maybe we can give some examples of like, what are some beliefs and attitudes that people who struggle with perfectionism might have? What are some like day-to-day things that they might struggle with? Because I feel like there might be so many people out there who are like, oh yeah, I'm a perfectionist, but not not enough, right? Like not enough for it to be a problem. So if you could talk about that. Perfectionists don't consider themselves perfectionists because they say, oh, I make mistakes all the time. Right. But this kind of destructive perfectionism is really the core of it. And, And where I think people find themselves is not in the realm of, am I perfectionist or not? When that aha moment comes, it's instead, 
I never express sadness. I never, you'll never see me angry. I worked with a woman, actually I worked with her while I was writing the book that had undergone years of infertility treatment, years, had gone through a couple of adoptions that had failed and fallen through. Uh, she finally, she and her husband finally adopted a child. And actually her husband had been very upset during the process. He had been crying and 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 she had said, we got to keep on, you know, we're, we're, we're dedicated to this. Let's go, let's go, let's go. She, she had a great job. Um, and they adopted a young boy and she fell apart mm -hmm. and she came in saying, this is, I'm so ashamed of myself. You know, here I have finally have this child and she was telling me about it. And she told me, you know, that she grew up in a family where nobody ever talked about what was really going on. Um, everybody was nice and, you know, accommodating and, and, and she said, you know, I've just always been a very you know, upbeat person. And, and what she discovered was that in having a child, the grief that she had not been, she didn't even know how to access it about all those trials, all those months and years of not being able to get pregnant. What, you know, she actually was experiencing having a child. Mm -hmm. And so all that grief was waiting for her and it was just overwhelming her. And she, she got, she said, I don't know what to do. I don't even know what this is called. And I said, it's called grief. Um, and slowly she began allowing herself to express it. What had also happened to this woman is that she had been um, very abused sexually in a relationship. She had been manipulated and used in college. And at that point, she had also said, no one is ever going to control me again. So that the, the, her family factor, the abuse fact, factor in college, and then she, you know, but, but Jenna, you would, she waltzed in my office with all this energy. And I remember when we began talking about the anger that she felt, and she said, I never, I don't ever get angry. I think anger is, is, it's a useless emotion. It doesn't, you know, I said, well, some, some, um, uh, expressions of anger are are not appropriate but anger is a part of grief it's a part of um, just a normal experience and when she risked talking about her anger with her husband she just thought their relationship would fall apart and he looked at her and said I have been waiting for 12 years to see the real you and I feel like I'm finally beginning to experience mm -hmm. it now that's not always the way it goes you know, sometimes these people have attracted people who want them to be totally in control. So of their emotions. So, um, but she blossomed, you know, because she could feel sad and she could feel afraid. And she realized when she was taking all the responsibility for all the problems in her family and, um, she really blossomed. And, you know, if people are wondering, well, do I fit in? I actually have a questionnaire on my website at drmargaretrutherford.com that kind of helps you figure out where am I on the spectrum of this? And I talk about the 10 different characteristics of this syndrome um, that aren't, you know, they're not empirically validated. They're my clinical observations, but they're certainly validated by a lot of the stories that I've heard since then. A man comes to mind, if you want to hear more stories about He'd actually come in with his wife and um, 
he, they had done some marital work and he called me several months later and said, I don't know what it is about you. I just like talking to you. And I, I, I've retired and there's some stuff happening that I don't understand. And so I, I had found him to be somebody that didn't know how to express pain. That was certainly, but you know, that's not what he was there for. He was there to work on his marriage. And so, so I began looking at that aspect of him. He'd been extremely successful. These people are generally very, very professionally successful. And uh, he retired and he'd begun drinking a lot. Mm. And so I started asking about his childhood and he started laughing, just this belly laugh, right? He said, yeah, my mom used to scream at me and throw rocks at me and tell me I'd never amount to anything. And right then and there, I decided I was going to show her and I've been very successful. I said, great. I said, don't you have a grandson? I said, yeah. I said, let's get your grandson over here. Let's go find some rocks and let's throw them at him and scream at him. He said, I'd never do that. I said, why not? He said, because that would hurt him. And I said, and that hurt you. You were once that little boy. Wow. He had no ability to have compassion, to acknowledge that child's hurt. He had just developed this strategy that he was going to be number one, better than number one, make a lot of money, be highly successful. And guess what was happening as the affirmation for that when he retired stopped, there were no more promotions. There were no more, you know, pats on the back. There was no more money coming in. He fell apart because he had never healed that little boy. Um, and this may sound to your readers like, oh, you know, going back and blaming your parents. No, 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 no. It's not self-pity. It's self-awareness. It's just acknowledgement. And there are so many people that will never and don't know how to go back to acknowledge that something that happened to them was caused them to make this unconscious decision. It's not something, oh, I'm going to look perfect. It's this it's a conscious decision maybe at first, but then it seeps into your unconscious mind and it just becomes who you are. I'm just somebody who always likes to do well, except that at your core, you're still fighting that fight inwardly mm-hmm. and you're still afraid that someone will say, you know what, you're not, you're not all that successful. And you, so you protect yourself. And I worked with a woman who said, She's a manager at a major hotel. And she said, oh, I, I always have to make sure I'm in charge of those meetings and that I know the problems before they come up. Because if I say, gosh, guys, I don't know what's going on. They won't respect me. It's like this veneer mm-hmm. of I've got it all handled has to be solid. And it is an extremely lonely existence. Yeah, absolutely. You are um, bringing to mind like, I feel like these examples that you're talking about and probably a lot of people who are listening to this episode, right? Like they probably are victim to very rigid thinking, right? Like that there's just one right way to feel like with the toxic positivity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Like there's a one right way to feel about motherhood. There's one right way to be a manager. um, And that if I make a mistake, then I am a mistake. Um, And that's kind of like what you mentioned, Brene Brown, right? The difference between that's like where shame comes in, like where I didn't just make a mistake. I am a bad person, right? right. Like I made a mistake and therefore I am a mistake. Um, so yeah. I, and I feel like one of the biggest things that I learned, like if I could go, if I could kind of dig up the one thing that was the huge mental mind shift for me 
like I would say in adulthood in general, but really in life in general would be like this, this, this concept that you can have multiple emotions at once. Right. Like, I feel like as, like, as adults now we're recognizing that maybe as children or as adolescents, like maybe our parents enforce this concept of like, well, you can't be sad or you can't be angry because you should be grateful instead, right? Like the you brought this to mind when you were mentioning the mother that you were, were referencing, right? Like it's very difficult to have those negative emotions and to like feel them fully because we feel like, oh, well, I should just be grateful that I have a kid in the first place. It's like, exactly. well, no, you can feel multiple things at once. You can feel really grateful that you have a child and still really be struggling and mourning your old life and grieving other things and, you know, be frustrated with your child. We're not this like one dimensional person. And and I honestly, like in my life, when I think of the people in my life and who I feel closest with and coziest with, it's the people who do allow that full range of emotion, right? Who do acknowledge the messy feelings and the anger and the sadness, the people who like you're mentioning, right. They have like this toxic positivity to them and they come in the therapy office and smiling and, Oh no, I never get sad. I never get angry. Like those are the individuals that I don't feel safe being myself with or having messy emotions with. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure if you have any thoughts about any of that. No, I think, I think that's right on target. I mean, I use the term and a lot, you can feel this Mm -hmm. and feel that and feel that instead of either or. And I think that's definitely that sort of dichotomy is something that people are taught. And that, um, and again, in these, in these kinds of families that um, struggle, their own, the family struggle is to allow these feelings to be expressed by the adults in the family, by the children in the family, and to allow that to where it, you know, you can discuss these sort of um, you're not, again, I'm using similar language. You're, you're, because you feel sad and you can feel confused or you can feel happy or you can feel, mm, uh, I I don't know. It's just, it's, it's much more complicated than that. And, and these people don't know that. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's kind of a, a one note and they are again, afraid. Um, I'll give you another example. Um, I use this in the book. The uh, there was a woman who um, actually came to see me because of the book, and um, as I was writing it, and she had been adopted, and her adopted parents uh, would tell her because she was very successful, and they said, you know, we've given you a lot of them, we've made those a lot of a lot of those things possible for you, and nah, it was kind of a a bad message to give an adopted child. You are who you are because of us. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, yes, that's somewhat true, but it's not something you want to feed a child who needs to know that their own agency is what caused, you know, a lot of their success. And so she was always about the business of proving her worth. And she was a heavy volunteer and was busy all the time. And one of her assignments was to go to a meeting and not agree to do anything. <laughs> And she told me literally, she sat on her hands, literally sat on her hands. And then she got out to her car and she was filled with shame. She said, all those people at that meeting were, are just as busy as I am. I need to go back in that meeting and say, yes, I'll do that. You couldn't get anybody to do that. I'll take that on. And then she realized, wait a minute, 
this is ridiculous. I, I went to one meeting and didn't take on an extra responsibility. Where is this shame coming from? Mm-hmm. And after we talked about it, we traced it back to her parents. And she had never made that connection that in their, you know, they, they, we all have faults as parents. And one of theirs was, was kind of constantly reminding her she needed to be grateful. Um, and so she said, I am grateful, but I also can, I can be grateful and I can claim that I am competent in the, in myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it, it's been when people get it, it is life-changing. I, I use this example from my own life because it's kind of a dramatic example. And I, I claim the drama. <laughs> I've been married three times. In fact, yesterday was my 32nd wedding anniversary. So the last one was, <laughs> was a good one. There you go. Third time's the first, charm, yeah. The first two were really chaotic and terrible decisions on my part uh, within about a decade. And so, you know, I've been married three times. And I had a lot of shame about that, that I carried around for years and years. I also have three letters after my name. I have a PhD after my name. I'm very proud of that PhD. I worked really hard for it. Um, but I don't think either one of those facts about me defines me. Mm-hmm. I think I am a PhD and I've been married three times. Uh, will people judge me? Will people think, oh, she must feel really la-di-da because she has a PhD or she should be ashamed herself because she's been married three times? Yeah, I'll get judged for that maybe. But, you know, I don't care about that. I, I have to just admit that myself and say I'm comfortable with people knowing and myself revealing both those things about myself. And neither one of them totally defines me. They are me. Um, they're part of my history. So I think when we get comfortable with that, I think that's exactly what Brene Brown's talking about. When you quit allowing shame to rule you, I I remember where I learned this was from Maya Angelou. Mm -hmm. She had a wonderful book called Wouldn't Take Nothing for My Journey Now. And when I heard about her, she was Bill Clinton's 1992 Poet Laureate. And I, I've, looked at that I said I've got to find something that this woman has written but I just was out of grad school and I didn't want to, I didn't want to read a book so I found the shortest book she'd ever read uh, she'd ever written which was wouldn't take nothing from my journey now and in that book Jenna she talks about that she had been one of the essays she says I had been voted New York City person of the month or person of the week or something and she was celebrating with friends and she got absolutely smashed and she sat down at a table with a bunch of men and she said, why do, why is no man ever attracted to me? You know, I'm a lovely person. And she just made a fool out of herself. One of those mistakes, she says, you wish you could change your name, your last name and move to Canada. <laughs> and I put the, that essay down and I said, here is a woman who is poet laureate of the United States, highly acclaimed author, who's also telling the story about herself. I want to be that kind of person. I want to be the person who can say, yes, I have strengths and I have vulnerabilities. I have made mistakes. I don't have to look perfect. And so I would love to say that that happened at that point, you know, and it was a huge life turnaround, but it took me another couple of decades to figure that out. Mm -hmm. Um, So the book is written for those people Um, especially now someone with what's called high functioning depression might really be attracted to it because 
they also, but, but those folks know they're depressed and they fit the classic definition of depression. Um, people with this um, symptomatology or this picture, they would deny that they're, no, they're not hopeless. No, they're not helpless. No, they, they love what they do. They have lots of energy. Um, they would say, no, I'm not depressed and do frequently. Um, but what is wrong is this emptiness and this despair inside that they don't call depression. Um, in fact, they don't call it anything. They try hard to pretend it doesn't exist until it gets overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes, sadly, they kill themselves. Right. So if anyone out there is listening and they're kind of resonating with the things and they're like, but I, then that doubt creeps in that you're talking about, right? Like, oh, that's not me, right? Like I make mistakes all the time, but they actually are one of these people, right? Because it, what you're saying is that it's kind of hidden. Um, yeah. You know, what might be some next steps that they could take or, you know, in addition, right? Like one of the things that you mentioned is like the, that kind of the pathway here, you know, that we would want all these individuals to get to a place of self-acceptance, right? Like where people can make those judgments about you and your PhD or the fact that you've been married three times and you're still okay with that at the end of the day, because you do have that self-acceptance, but that might seem so far, Our, like such a huge, like such a long way away and unreachable. Like if we could just give some of our listeners some like tactful steps that they might be able to take, even whether it's like to just educate themselves more about it. Um, well, my, my website, there's a, a whole bunch, drmargaretrutherford.com. I've written about it a lot. I've podcasted about it. Dr. Brene Brown's work is with her original book, The Gifts of Imperfection is a wonderful book. There's a book by Terrence Real for men called I Don't Want to Talk About It. And he talks about covert depression. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that would fit in this rubric as well. Um, there's a lot of research. If you want to look at, you know, if you're a research-oriented person, uh, there are lots of books on perfectionism. The problem with a lot of the books on perfectionism, in my view, though, is because they, they're just going to help you fix it. Right. They're going to give you a guide to fix it, but you, they're not going to talk about why you have developed this in the first place. So that little boy who got rocks thrown at him never really gets talked to or acknowledged. You just said, well, you know, quit doing this or try doing this or allow yourself to make mistakes. But when you don't know the reason why, sometimes though, and you don't, you don't, you don't dig it up by the roots that that's part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of your website and I know, you know, again, I have your book right here. Um, I am even more, you know, excited to kind of dive into it. It's such a helpful resource for people. Um, exercises in it. So my gosh, also I'm, a workbook. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, I would love for you to tell people where they can find you more, you know, give us, you know, another rundown of your website, uh, let us know where we can find your book and I'll make sure to put everything in the show notes. Um, and then yeah, have, talk about your podcast as well. I have a column in psychology today called perfectly hidden depression. Uh, my website is drmargaretrutherford.com. My, my podcast is the self-work podcast and we have had, um, over a million downloads just this year with wow. over 4 million over the last six years. So um, a lot of folks are listening to it. And I have a Facebook group that people are, uh, I'd love them to, to, for them to join. It's facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. And we give each other a lot of support there. Um, again, my book has 60 exercises in it. Um, it's by ebook, Audible, um, and of course, paperback. It's also published in five other languages um, and has been bought to be 
published in four more. So if you're, um, so I, I would, I would love any and all a kind of, uh, if, if you want to email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com, I'll answer your emails. So <laughs> that as well. Yeah. Awesome. And I, I'm just here. I just flipped to a random page and it's so like, like I love the practices. I love people being able to have these like actionable steps and those sure. light bulb moments, like I said, and right here, page 96, 10 directions to move forward. So like a lot of really great examples of self-constructive beliefs. I want to learn more about my creativity. My worry keeps me unavailable in the moment. It's okay to say no. Um, I love, love, love all of the things that you're doing. I'm very action oriented. People yes. who see me say, you know, you're kind of a, you're just, you get to the chase. You cut to the chase. That's what you have to do. I cut to the chase. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Um, so yeah, I respect and totally love everything that you're doing. Um, thank you again so much. I'll make sure that all of those are in the show notes for you guys to follow up on. Um, but Dr. Rutherford, thank you so much for your expertise here. Um, you know, hopefully we'll chat with each other soon, but thank you so much for being here today. Sounds great. Thank you, Jenna. For more information and resources, head to my website at www.jennaoverbaugh.com. From there, you can sign up for my email newsletter so you can make sure that you are the most up-to-date about upcoming resources, podcast episodes, blogs, challenges, and more. Also, check me out on Instagram at jenna.overbaugh and tune into some other episodes here while you're at it. As always, if you have a free minute, it would mean the world to me if you could please subscribe and rate this podcast. Subscriptions and ratings help me keep the podcast going and help me spread the word to other people who need these resources and they otherwise may not get them. With that said, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really love creating these episodes for you. And until next time, keep doing all the hard things.